My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Something you might not know about me is that I'm a deep introvert. I'm a very happy chap when on my own or in a very small group of people. It's nice to talk, but I also enjoy the silence. However, as a tinnitus sufferer, and with two Pomeranian dogs in the household, silence is generally hard to come by. When I talk to people who've experienced an unlock moment, a remarkable flash of clarity, when they figured out the path ahead, they often describe a moment of silence. It might be real silence, the absence of sound, or it might be that the world has slowed down for a moment, a shocking piece of news, a change in circumstances that has caused them to stop and reflect. What's the deepest silence you've ever known? Today, amidst the mass proliferation of mental stimulation, this may be a difficult question to answer, yet it's a question that could contain a key to solving some of the most serious personal and even global challenges that we face. In their new book, Golden, the power of silence in a world of noise, Justin Zorn and Lee Mars, invite us to rethink our definition of silence, not just as the absence of noise, but as a presence that can bring us energy, clarity, and deeper connection. Justin Talbot Zorn has served as both a strategist and a meditation teacher in the US Congress, a Harvard and Oxford trained specialist in the economics and psychology of human thriving. He has written for the Washington Post, The Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, Foreign Policy, and other publications. He lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Lee Mars is a collaboration and leadership coach for major universities, corporations, and federal agencies, as well as a longtime student of pioneering researchers and practitioners of the ritualized use of psychedelic medicines in the West. She has led training programs to promote an experimental mindset among teams at NASA and a decade-long cross-sector collaboration to reduce toxic chemicals in products in partnership with Green Science Policy Institute, Harvard University, IKEA, Google, and Kaiser Permanente. She lives in Berkeley, California. In their book, Golden, Zorn and Mars take us on an unlikely journey, from the West Wing of the White House to San Quentin's death row, from Ivy League brain research laboratories to underground psychedelic circles, from the temperate rainforests of Olympic National Park to the main stage at a heavy metal festival to explore the meaning and importance of silence and the art of finding it in any situation. I'm keen to discover more about how you can find this silence in your own everyday life, and through that silence discover the path to your own unlock moment. Let's pause, listen, and dive into this fascinating topic. Justin and Lee, it is my great pleasure to welcome you both to the unlock moment. Oh, thank you for having us. Gary, it's a joy to be with you. So why did the two of you decide to get together and write a book about silence? You know, it was really came out of a moment of desperation. 
we were both working in politics and economics and human rights issues, removing toxic chemicals from supply chains. I was working on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Lee was working in coaching and coalitions work with a variety of different organizations and sectors. And we both just had a sense that what we were doing was running up against so many limits. People were distracted. There was a real scarcity of new and creative ideas. People were sensing a kind of diminishment of possibilities. And we both just had this intuition that the answer was to become more adept at navigating the noise, but more deeply the answer was to develop an appreciation for silence as the space through which real intuition, real solutions can emerge. What would you add to that, Lee? Mm, I'm just loving this frame of an unlock moment. And I, I'm just grateful that we, this is one we shared. When we started to turn towards silence, there was suddenly some possibility that wasn't there before. In came humility, in came some clarity, in came the ability to discern perhaps where we really wanted to put our energies and efforts. And we just kept tuning into that. Um, really, for five years together, we've been tuning into that and following the cookie crumbs, which led us to do a lot of interviews with fascinating characters, neuroscientists, politicians, artists, poets, a Grammy-winning opera singer, um, a man incarcerated on death row for a crime that preponderance of evidence says he didn't commit for decades he's been there. You know, so many fascinating people asking him this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? And that led us to really explore this world of noise we now live in and saturated in and this, this opportunity and possibility and remembering of silence and the importance in our human lives and what it can offer us, including this, this place of insight. And what surprised you about what people told you when you asked them, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? The biggest surprise for us was that the answers weren't always auditory, auditorily quiet. Oftentimes people found their deepest silence in moments of flow, the 4 a.m. mark at an all-night dance party, or running the perfect line through roaring rapids. We interviewed someone who was a leading expert in the science of mindfulness in terms of biobehavioral health and medicine, a professor named Joshua Smythe at Penn State University who told us about a participant in one of his studies who found his deepest state of internal silence while carving blocks of wood into sculptures with a roaring chainsaw. So we came to realize that this phenomenon of, of silence had different levels to it. And so too we could see that the phenomenon of noise had different levels to it. There's the, the auditory noise, but there's also the informational noise. And deeper still, there's the, the internal noise. So we think about noise as unwanted distraction at all these different levels. And we think of silence as the absence of noise, yes, the absence of anything making claims on our consciousness, the absence of anything interfering with our clear perception and intention. But we also think, as you alluded to in your very kind, generous introduction, Gary, we think of silence as something more than just this absence, it's this presence unto itself too. And that was another one of those surprises that came up for us in these interviews that people described their deepest silence, not just everyday silence, but the deepest silence 
as this mysterious presence through which new ideas and inspirations would emerge, which I suppose you could call these unlock moments. And so when you're using the word silence, but you're saying, you know, that could be somebody holding a chainsaw and chopping down a tree, you're not using silence in, in the literal way that we normally think of, just the absence of auditory noise. You're, you're saying something different. We certainly started by looking at auditory noise and that and, and even asking this question, is there such a thing as silence, really, in a world that is vibrating and oscillating and pulsing? And there may not be. We're pretty sure there isn't. And so we kind of tossed that, that concern out because there's most certainly an experience of quiet in our mind, that type of internal silence that is agreed upon by scientists, neuroscientists. They said, absolutely, this is a, you know, this is a moment. But even in the brain, there's no absolute silence unless the brain is dead. So we don't want that in a living brain. There's just all this firing and things going on, but there are, without question, shared experiences. People talk about in diverse experiences, but a shared experience of internal quiet. And that became increasingly our area of interest. And all of that can unlock and offer us in terms of the opportunity to gain perspective in, you know, in, in the midst of all this mayhem to find clarity in terms of our own purpose, which I know is something you care a lot about, and heal, even. And why do you see silence as a solution to complex challenges? You know, it's not so much that we see silence itself as the solution, but we see silence as a gateway, as a prerequisite to finding the solutions. We're living in a world where there's pervasive pressure to think of what to say to perform, to habitually have to protect our reputations and promote our points of view. And one of the common denominators in the, the explorations of silence with neuroscientists as well as people who've done extraordinary things throughout the world is, it's essential to step into a state of being where we're not focused on performing to other people's expectations, but being in a state of being where we can simply focus on an understanding of what's true. We look to the example of the uh, great Greek ancient philosopher Pythagoras, who required his inner circle of students to spend five years in silence, five years not talking if they wanted to study with him. And Pythagoras, you, you may remember from grade school math class, was you know, famous for developing these geometric theorems. But he came up with so many different scientific and philosophical discoveries and insights. And he saw this as a prerequisite to understanding deeper truth. We look also to the example of Gandhi, who even in the midst of the campaign for the liberation of India for in Indian independence, he spent every Monday not talking. Every Monday essentially in silence. He would sometimes attend meetings and see other people, but he wouldn't speak a word. And he said, it's often occurred to me that a seeker after truth has to be in silence. He described this as a prerequisite to identifying intuition, to identifying the most creative solutions, and to cultivating discernment. It's very interesting listening to the two of you speak, because when I'm coaching people, often I'm listening to the velocity of their brain, the velocity of their thoughts. Um, and with a lot of people that I work with who are in moments of crisis or moments of chaos or moments of change, 
the velocity of their brain is really high. And sometimes they don't notice how high it is, but really high. And something that I notice in both of you, and I'm, I'm hopeful that my listeners can tune into this too, is that for both of you, the velocity of your mind, the velocity of your thoughts is slow in a way that is, is unusual and for me fascinating. But I hear it in, 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 in the two of you. Um, I couldn't possibly bring two of the world's leading experts on silence onto a podcast and not experience silence with you and with the listeners. So I want us to take a minute in silence. I'm going to time us. And then I want to get your reflections on that time. So we're going to, we're going to take a minute. We'll be back. And what I love about podcasting is that you can do just that. Um, you can just take the time. Um, it's a long time. I mean, it feels like a long time in silence. What did you both experience? What did you hear in, in that time of silence? I'll start us off by just saying um, in the many, many podcasts we've done, this is only the second time we've been invited to this. And we're just, I just love it. So thank you, Carrie, so much for that. It's a treat. And so in that experience, once again, what I noticed was a real rush of gratitude coming in, just to pause and to have this moment in the midst of this conversation, which I care very much about and really excited to get into. And yet, at the same time, to just be able to be in the experience, to catch up with the experience and not be rushing through it. So gratitude came rushing in. I have a feeling that that's, um, that's not an, uh, I don't know, not a coincidence. Like that, that There's something about silencing gratitude, the ability to catch up with the actual experience I'm in that, that really serves me. So thank you for that. Justin, what did you experience or hear? You know, one word that comes up for me a lot, certainly related to gratitude, is, is abundance. We're living in a world where there's so much feeling of scarcity, so much feeling of stress and rush. And again, as I mentioned, you know, we've worked in, in fields where that's very much the norm in politics and policy and social change. And the message of this book is, is really fundamentally notice noise, tune into silence. And even if these pockets of silence are only available to us for one minute, 30 seconds, maybe even less, to see how deeply you can go into the silence for even that very short period of time. Maybe it's even a minuscule moment of time in between words in a sentence or in a pause in a conversation. How deeply can we go into this silence to appreciate this silence? Because as we find it, 
And as the neuroscientists and academic psychologists we've studied with in the process of writing this book all attest, there are opportunities in each of these pockets of silence to find an abundance of rest and renewal. It's really interesting. What I reflected on in that moment of silence was the wise words of my coaching supervisor. I'm supervised by a master coach called Claire Petrick, who really is a fabulous coach. And um, she said to me recently, she said, what do you do? What should you do in a moment of silence with a coaching client? And the answer was nothing at all. And she said, the reason for that is because where they stop before the silence and when they start again after the silence is in a different place. Um, and if you're doing thinking whilst they're silent, then you're not going to pick them up in the place where they've come to. And I thought it was so interesting because for me in silence, my brain was filled with almost planning or, or shaping what happens next. And what I now start to do when that silence appears in a coaching conversation is I have to consciously do nothing at all. And that's a really interesting discipline, not only to experience the silence, but actually participate in it as well and allow your brain to be, to be quiet. Um, and I, I still feel very much on the foothills of, of, of the mountain of coaching that, that Claire is, is, is far further ahead than me on. Um, but it's just a really interesting reflection. For people that are listening to this podcast, what would you like them to be reflecting on in those moments of silence? What can they do to help move their thinking forward? Gary, I was thinking about what you just said about that normal instinct to go into planning mode, to go into doing and thinking. And that's, that's really good, really admirable that you're working to cultivate this space. You know, and as I think about speaking to others about how to do this work, the first thing that comes to mind to me is to not beat yourself up, to not judge yourself for it being difficult, for jumping into that planning and doing mode. Because we're conditioned to do that as human beings. And that's, it's okay. You know, there's a lot of work to be done in this world, in our personal lives, in our communities, in our globe as a whole. So it's natural. We have a chapter in the book called Why Silence is Scary. And we look at the, how it's a norm in our culture. And it's a, it's, not just something that's a fact about digital native generations or people alive today. It's something that goes deep into history. Nietzsche wrote about the horror of the vacuum that a person is subject to encounter. We look at various academic studies, like one at the University of Virginia, where a social psychologist gave undergraduate students, he put them in a room for 15 minutes with no entertainment, no phones, and gave them the, op op the option to either sit there in silence or to shock themselves with a painful electric shock. And at the beginning of the study, most said that they would actually pay money to avoid being shocked. But by the end of it, more than 60% of the men and about 25% of the women had shocked themselves rather than sit in silence. So the first thing I would say, <laughs> the first thing I would say is just that this impulse to fill the space is real. And we can honor it, not as something bad necessarily, but just something we're conditioned for. But like any form of exercise, it's good work and it's difficult work, but it's edifying and rewarding work to be able to develop comfort with the empty, open space. And one thing we explore in the book is that this message isn't the same thing as telling people to go meditate 
we're not advocating for any one particular practice in how to watch the breath or sit still or even do a kind of walking meditation. Our focus here is really just in giving people the license to forget about questions like, am I doing it right, to feel like they need to meditate in a certain way, and simply tune into the silence as they experience it, as you experience it. That's really interesting because a lot of people will think about letting go. And you're saying in some ways the same thing, but in a different way by saying, tune into the silence. It's a positive way of saying something like letting go of everything that's noisy. Mm -hmm. We do call this a non-meditator's guide to getting beyond the noise. Sort of, It's an unofficial kind of <laughs> title there. Because we are really interested in the innate ability, our human ability to connect to silence, to remember silence, to remember what it gives to our lives, um, what it brings in, and to encourage us to take that space. So I, the other thing I'd just add for people trying to sort this out and figure it out is just a reassurance. You know how to do this. You know quiet. You're quiet. And it's really important that we're looking for our own ways to quiet, not maybe the way that works for somebody else, our neighbor, our friend, our partners, whatever. But what is our way to quiet? Like the chainsaw carver, it may be extraordinarily <laughs> interesting, right? It may be very creative. It may be in motion. It may be in an auditorily loud environment. It may be who knows what, but it's that place of internal quiet that we're looking for. And some part of us knows the way. We don't need to make it complicated. This isn't some newfangled idea. And this isn't some, you know, I don't know, esoteric life hack or anything. It's just basic. And so that noticing, noticing whether it's that flurry of thinking, noticing what's coming through the sensory channels in our bodies and our emotions and things like that is just keeping it simple and attuning, tuning into that silence. It's that simple. And, you know, we've been doing that for five years. It's a pretty, that simple instruction can bring in a lot of goodness. How has the pandemic changed the noise in the world? Is it different now from three, four years ago, do you think? It's a question we thought about a lot in writing this book because we wrote it in the middle of the pandemic. You know, we certainly didn't write this in quiet circumstances in the pandemic. My wife and I had, had twins and we also have now have a five-year-old as well. So it was certainly a it was certainly a very full experience in our household and Lee's as well. And in the early days of the pandemic, you know, there was so much fear and confusion. And we felt that there was just this one silver lining of some quiet. You know, ocean shipping declined and there was a resurgence of whale song. For the first time, people could hear bird song. And Pete, there were some articles back in 2020 about whether birds had suddenly gotten louder, which people were questioning. But it wasn't the birds, it was us. We'd finally gotten quieter. You know, but all the quiet was short-lived. You know, all the ocean shipping and the car traffic rebounded, and our schedules quickly filled up with Zoom calls and webinars and hybrid homeschooling and, you know, this and that in such a way that you know, we just didn't seize the opportunity to quiet down all that overwhelming sound and stimulus of the modern world. So in the book, we look at the broader socio-political and, and economic reasons why that was so. 
you know, why we live in a world of so much noise at the economic level. We look at how our system of GDP, for example, is how we measure, you know, how we measure economic progress or we measure business cycles. It is designed to measure how much industrial production, but also how much production of sound and stimulus and data and information we're accomplishing. That's the name of the game of our society. So in this book, we want to, you know, we work, you know, through the lens of the pandemic to understand why it is that noise is almost our most celebrated addiction as a culture, as a society. And we explore some ways, learning lessons from the pandemic, how we might work to unwind that. Do you think that data is noisy? You know, our over-proliferation of data overwhelming us every moment of our lives. Is that noisy in your world? It, it depends, you know, because we look at noise, we define it as unwanted interference with our perception, with our intention, goal interference, not just necessarily goals in the sense of what we want to do in the short term, but big picture goals. And data, our approach to data right now as a culture is the maximum possible proliferation of data. So we're bound to be producing more than actually suits our real intentions. Lee, what would you add to that? Yeah, we just, in, the, in our definition of noise, when we're looking at it on the auditory informational where we're talking right now and internal levels, we're distinguishing noise from auditory from sound and information from data, which we think of as neutral until it gets in the way of our attention and internal that the thoughts, thoughts are great. You know, we love thoughts, but when it gets into that chatter, the harmful, critical, you know, obsessive rumination, worry, then, you know, so there's a tipping point. There's just that it existing in the world. And then when it starts to take over and lay claim on our attention, our intentions and the purpose that we're here for. What, how are your phones and um, smartwatches, if you have them sort of set up in terms of notifications, do you have them all switched off or do you have some switched on? Pretty much. I, I'll say that I came back from a trip to Japan where, we, where I had, um, this was pre-COVID, and I just turned, kept my uh, ringer off ever since then, and I just love it. <laughs> so I pretty much, you know, so pretty much all not notifications are on silence. I can see visually them, but then to work and to write on this book, you know, we take all that down. We use some programs, or Justin could speak to that, some programs to just keep it all to, to word processing and no notifications coming in. But what's interesting is the default, like say I get a new phone or, so, you know, we update a program, the default continues to go back to noise, notification, uh, interruption. And so it's just a, it's an uphill battle, but it's worth taking the time. Uh, on that one, I, I tell a funny story in the in the book about my mom and my Betty, her wife of thirty years, who came to live with us for a bit, and their notifications, their defaults were all set to it just <laughs> clamor, you know, ping, zing, whoosh, everything, and so I had to have a conversation with them about that because that was interrupting my ability to work, and for them it didn't bother them one bit. Um, so, you know, this is, again, our noise is a subjective experience. One person's noise is another person's, you know, important notification. And so we talked about that and found common ground. And that's part of what we spend the book talking about is, you know, we have different experiences of noise and of silence. And so we're most of us in relationship and sharing space and trying to find our way through the world. So we may have to have some kind of 
challenging, awkward, interesting conversations to find our way to to everyone getting what they, their needs met around silence and pristine attention. So I'm loving this conversation. I'm loving hearing this you know, low velocity of, of thinking, which, which is really powerful. And you can hear the difference in, in, in the dynamic of a conversation. And I hope the listeners can tune into that. Um, in the real world, I'm thinking of my listeners, they're going to be saying, you know, I work in a hospital or I work in a shop or I work in a restaurant or I work in a call center. You know, in my real world, how, how do I find silence in the middle of a busy, noisy day with my to-do list and my boss calling me and whatever? It's lovely hearing this conversation, but I don't know how it relates to me. So how, how can people in their real lives start to experience some of this, find some of this? We really didn't want to write a book, and we didn't write a book for people who want to find silence in monasteries or running away from their lives. Because we're living very full lives, as I mentioned, having three little kids for me running around the house, and Lee has a teenager and very full work commitments. So one framework we use to explore this is thinking about what we call the healthy successor to the smoke break. It's a wonderful thing that you know many people have stopped smoking in recent decades, but we've lost something insofar as there's no longer these pockets of quiet time of deep inhalation and exhalation that's built into people's days. So, you know, given that it's a wonderful thing that people are no longer smoking, what's the healthy successor to the smoke break? And we have a chapter of the book that is very much geared toward people in busy lives and situations like you're talking about, Gary. And the ideas we explore are, for example, the practice of stepping outside and just turning all your attention to your listening. We looked at the example of someone who was a busy reporter in Washington, D.C., a White House correspondent for Time magazine, who at the end of the day would go and sit on her couch without any meditation training or anything like that, and for five minutes just sit and listen to the ringing in her ears. And after five minutes, she would notice that ringing in her ears would turn down a little bit because of her attention on it. And she would find that it was almost like a residual effect of the stress in the day it was contributing to some of it. And then she would notice her whole nervous system would calm. And then she would go cook dinner. You know, so that's just one quick example of what the healthy successor to the smoke break would look like. Lee, do you want to speak to some others? Yeah, it's it just, um, we, we have the reader do is tune into the sphere of control they have. And this is what you're pointing towards, uh, Gary, is like some of these workplaces, it's like very loud. And those who are working in medical hospitals, things like that, some of the loudest environments ever. And it's lots of serious issues with that in terms of the alarm fatigue that's going on and all those issues, you know, very <laughs> intimately. So, um, to think about what is in our sphere of control, where, where, where can we take charge of things? What's in our sphere of influence? Where might it be appropriate to have a conversation where perhaps coworkers can collaborate and find their, their way together? And then what is really out of our control? But we do find that there are some places where most of us have a little bit of control, whether it's taking that minute like you had us do, like a minute, a transition, maybe and maybe not even that long. But say, for example, one of our um, interviewees, he really looked at transition points, really small moments where you're shifting attention. You know, this actually really works with how our attention works more like molasses than water when we switch tasks. 
So he would use that opportunity of, say, closing down one document, opening up another, or getting ready for a meeting, or whatever the kind of transition was, however small. He would just take that moment to take a drink of his water and just kind of regroup to drop in to connect with his breath. And really a moment, not even the minute we took. And if he did that throughout the day, he could be refreshed in his very high stress job in Singapore. So he was really a lot of hustle, but he could always find that time. And then the other, another uh, suggestion is when those times come to you, which sometimes happens, let's say you're just in a ginormous line in the grocery store or the post office or wherever, or you're in traffic, or let's just say your phone just stops working, that you embrace that moment that opportunity to connect with silence instead of fussing and feuding or trying to fill it with more activities and more space. So we talk about the little gifts of silence. So really just try to find even those micro moments. And that's just as a starter, right? Just to kind of build the capacity and appreciation for silence. And then perhaps over time to find more and more times of silence where maybe you take that long to-do list that you have on a hike out in the woods, you know, as far out as you can get, you might print up or write up your to-do list, get into the silence, feel, listen to the birds and the wind and, you know, those kinds of things, and then take that to-do list out and see what is truly meant to be on that list. One of our interviewees did that and he, you know, he had a thing for to-do lists and it got a little too long. He took it out into the woods for, into some deep quiet, actually, um, for a day, dropped in took out that to-do list and removed something like five months of commitments, folded up his to-do list, hiked back out, you know, one day, five months, that's pretty good ROI there. So make himself a campfire, burn the to-do list. That's, that's the way to go. Oh, that's a good ending. I like (laughs) that. Yeah. Um, Now, quite a lot of people that, that listen to this podcast to senior leaders in, in large organizations. Um, how can you think about creating a culture for your people where you enable them to find silence. And so you're not always the organization that's top down is creating the noise. We actually just published an article in Harvard Business Review called How to Build a Culture that Honors Quiet Time. And we look at the idea that, um, we actually look at my experience, you mentioned that I worked in the U.S. Congress for some time. We look at the, the story that back in the Constitutional Convention in the U.S., 1787 in Philadelphia, the delegates had a giant mound of dirt built outside the Constitution Hall, now Constitution Hall, so that they could do their immersive deep work together. And then we fast forward some 200 plus years to the time when I was working in Congress, when it was the exact opposite organizational culture in terms of respect for quiet, TVs blasting, nonstop interruptions non-stop interruptions in terms of email and phone calls and, and you name it. So we look at what, it, what does it mean to shift an organizational culture one way or another, looking at this kind of clear contrast. And we, we start with something really quite ironic, which is to say that to shift an organizational culture toward quiet, it's essential to have a conversation about quiet. It's important to talk about quiet, which is to say it's important to talk about what we need in terms of our working styles, in terms of our need for uninterrupted deep work time, in terms of our need for the sonic soundscape, 
And this applies to office settings as well as to home life. It could apply with families or among friends or housemates and so on and so forth. So we also explore a lot of practical ideas for business too. One through line in the book is a Japanese concept called Ma. And Ma is an ancient Japanese aesthetic principle. That means the empty space, the space in between notes in music, in between words in speaking, even the empty space between flowers, for example, in Ikebana flower arrangement, or in between, in between the um, brush strokes in art. So Ma means this empty space, appreciation for this empty space. But another translation for Ma is pure potentiality. So one idea we explore is we, we talk about Ma on the job and what it would mean to bring this respect for pure potentiality and open empty space into the office. So for example, we look at the idea of brainstorming. You know, in, in brainstorming, there's often this kind of tyranny of the fastest and loudest. But is it possible to preserve some space for silent contemplation in the group? Is it possible to have nonverbal report outs, for example, like a post-it note gallery that you put on the wall so that people can silently peruse and then vote on ideas anonymously? Is it possible to make space to sleep on a question so you don't have to immediately decide on everything, but bring it into the dream world? So we explore this of what it could mean to bring Ma on the job. We explore the example of how Quakers, for example, make business decisions you know, often practical decisions regarding their centers and their organizations, employing silence for the work of what they call threshing, separating the wheat from the chaff. They see silence as this essential tool when meetings get contentious to be able to clarify decision-making. What I love about the things you're describing is, I'm a great believer that if you try to change culture a bit, you can't. But if you try to change culture in a really radical way, then you have a shot. And I, and I love how your, your description is so, like, it blows the mind of so many people in business to some of those things you're thinking about. In, in some way, they seem simple, but they are really, really radical thinking changes for an organization. I think of the, the book Time to Think by Nancy Klein. She talks a lot about running meetings in fundamentally different ways to enable people to have voice. And frankly, for other people to say less um, and, and, and not sort of o overwhelm the, the conversation. So, and I, th I think that's a really key piece because without, without that ambition to do something fundamentally different, in the end, people tend to default back to what they were doing before and, and then nothing changes. And in today's world, it has to change. It just fundamentally has to change because to stand still is to slide very rapidly backwards. Now, I don't know whether you were both always like this, um, slow brain pace, um, great voices for radio and, 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 and the calmest people I've ever had on the podcast. But is there a time when you look back to when you were, I don't know, teenagers um, and, and maybe you weren't quite in this kind of mind, mindset or, or headspace? And if you port yourself back to put your arm around the shoulder of those people and you say to them, you know, with what you've learned now, what you know now, what you understand now, what would you say to a younger version of yourself who maybe was immersed in a noisy world? What would you say to them? Hmm. 
So I'm going to speak to my yesterday self because I was plenty hectic and frantic yesterday at different moments. And I just want to emphasize that this is a, you know, this is really a practice. And so some of what comes to me to say is that there's this motto um, that I use with some of the chemists that we're working with who are getting those harmful pollutants out of products and, and supply chains to slow down. There isn't much time. For me, for Justin, I know we can get sped up. We care. You know, there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of stuff that's of great importance. It is urgent, so urgent that perhaps slowing down is what we need to do because there isn't much time to sort this out. So I come back to that, you know, I'm putting my arm around my yesterday self and the day, you know, an hour ago self rather regularly. So I just want to emphasize how how frequently this is that this is the practice of coming back and coming back into quiet and tuning into silence as we've talked about. Um, and then just again and again, and it's worth it. There's a lot of reward. You know, that's the other thing is I keep seeing the rewards. I keep seeing the limitations of that speeding up that you're describing. I keep getting that feedback, um, in tighter and tighter feedback loops. So it's pretty, it becomes pretty clear the way to go, the way forward slowly. <laughs> Justin Fee. It's funny when you write a book with someone, you really get aligned because I was going to say the same thing about slow down. There's not much time, which is Lee's motto for these conferences, which sounds like a paradox. You know, usually we hear hurry up. There's not much time, but slow down. There's not much time in the sense that when we are sped up, when we are in that normal mode, I was describing before Gary of performing to other people's expectations of seeking to look good in the press release. We're not often in the mode of really seeking to solve something or really seeking what's true. We speak extensively in the book with a guy named Cyrus Habib, the son of Iranian immigrants to the U.S. He went blind when he was eight years old, wound up going to Columbia and Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and Yale Law School and becoming the lieutenant governor of Washington State in the U.S. when he was, and everyone expected Cyrus to run for governor or U.S. Senate. But instead, he shocked everyone and announced that he was taking a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience as a novice Jesuit priest. And he told us that when he finally went into this 30-day silent retreat, right from the lieutenant governor's office, a silent retreat to begin his Jesuit study, he said that he had gotten rid of all the auditory and informational noise in his life, but the internal noise was still deafening. His thoughts, the volume of his thoughts, were just too much to handle. And he looked at this question, why? Why is it so noisy inside my own mind? And this was the answer that came to him, that he was in a mode of performing for other people, to other people's expectations, to other people's assessments of him. And he was in a mode of always thinking about how things would appear in his work to the public, as opposed to really thinking about the question, What's true, right? What would really, really solve this circumstance? And that former mode was all about speed, all about hurry up, there's not much time. But the, the perspective he's come to is that to solve something, to really fix something, requires deep attention, listening, it requires respect for intuition, and silence is a prerequisite for all of this. So this comes to a big issue for us in writing this book, which is that silence can sometimes be perceived as apathy and withdrawal. 
You know, sometimes people speak of silence as complicity or complacency and even violence. And we, we actually honor that, you know, it, to not speak out against real, something that's really, truly wrong is, is an evil in the world. It's a problem in the world. But what we're talking about is a kind of silence that's creating the space, creating the clarity within ourselves to where we can really see what's going on so that we can be more skillful in addressing what's wrong. That's really powerful. Where can people find out more about you and where can they get a copy of this amazing book? Oh, yeah. So our book is called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. And HarperCollins published it here in the United States and in the UK, it's Penguin. So you can go to their sites and find it. And you can really find it in any of your any of the places where you buy books these days, which we're grateful for. Um, and you can find us at astreastrategies.com. That's A-S-T-R-E-A strategies.com. And we have a contact form and we'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For Justin Zorn and Lee Mars, the secret to clarity is to connect with the silence. And I hope this conversation has stimulated you to think about how you can discover the silence in your life every day. So do tiptoe out quietly and grab a copy of Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. Justin and Lee, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you both on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. Thank you so much, Gary. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.